I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go back to Psalm 32, please. Again, it's page 462 if you're using one of the the Bibles provided for you there in the seats. Uh, Before we dive into the message this morning, uh, I told you I wanted to just mention, just take a quick second here and talk about the small groups that we're starting uh, and the, the week is the 16th. And the times are listed on the, um, on the sign-up sheets out there in the office window if you go around here in that hallway. Um, you know, I think by the, the latest count that I've been able to ascertain, there's about 47 times in the New Testament where we find um, something that says to do something either to or for or with one another. Love one another is a very common one that appears several times in the biblical text. You know, I've been thinking and we've been praying, like how can we as a church ensure that we're doing that to each other, that we're, that we're ministering to one another, that we're, we're helping one another? And uh, when there's a large group, it's easy for people to kind of fall through the cracks a little bit. And we do our best to, to make sure that doesn't happen. And we call on people, we encourage people, and um, you know, make phone calls or send emails and go visit people and all this type of things. But uh, I, I still think that there's times where people fall through the cracks. And it's not just the, the leadership's job to do these things, although we do have that responsibility. The Bible talks about how we all need to do this together. So we're looking for a forum or a format to get people connected to one another. And, um, and we've tried this before. and We've done different things in the past. Um, but I really wanted to make sure that we were very clear with the purpose of this. Because... I've heard few times people say um, that they're not connected to someone or they wish they had more, more Christian fellowship and Christian friends or they wish they had more connectivity with other believers that would help them in their Christian walk. So, and we all need that. This is, this is why we are encouraging every family in our church to get involved in a small group. Um, so don't look at this as something like, well, if I've got time, uh, I'll do that. No, no, no. This is part of the discipleship strategy of our church, that once a week you get together with a small group of believers, and the format's really simple. All you're going to do is you're going to get together at someone's home, talk about the sermon, because uh, a lot of groups are going to meet on Sunday night. Some are, we have at least one that's on Monday night. Um, or one Sunday afternoon, um, but talk about the, the sermon, just have a short little discussion about that, pray together, spend a little time praying together, and then just spend time getting to know each other, just hang out for a little bit, and then you're moving on. We thought about doing book studies, but then we thought, no, we don't want to make this intensive that everyone has to read a chapter in order to come. We thought about making this another type of study where just the leaders themselves led in a study. But then we thought, no, because people are really busy, particularly this time of year, back to school and, and the different things and all this stuff. Let's make this as easy as possible. So what I'm planning on doing is each week, I'm going to email two or three discussion questions to the group leaders. 
And then they'll have those for the discussion. But then the, the groups are free to discuss anything. Uh, you know, particularly about the sermon be great, what was helpful, what was confusing. You know, if there was a, a you know, say, man, I, I, I didn't quite understand where he was, he was going with this when he said that. Have that conversation in your groups, okay? Respectfully, please, you know, but, but, but have that conversation and say, you know, I didn't really understand what he was trying to say with that because if, if there's two or three, because one, someone else may be able to help you with that. Or number two, if two or three groups, you know, I get back and they're like, yeah, you know, that, that, what, why did you use that illustration again? What was that point about or whatever? Well, you know, the goal of my, my goal is communication and clarity. It's not just to get through a sermon and check it off the list. And so if I'm communicating in a way or that particular Sunday, something communicated in a poor manner, well, then we have a chance to correct that, okay? And so have that, but more importantly than whether or not the sermon is completely understood. What's most important is that relationships continue to be developed because we cannot live this life alone. We cannot. We try. Many of us try. Many of us like solitude. And I've shared this with you before. The older I get, the more of an introvert I become. Okay? Um, I'll share this. Last Wednesday, uh, Joe and I had the opportunity to go on a, a motorcycle ride. And I, I was, Jeff was so gracious to let me borrow his motorcycle. Joe had his motorcycle, and we rode about 310 miles or so that day. And it was great prayer time, things like this. And it, it fits Joe's personality perfectly, okay? And mine, too, as I'm getting older. We, 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 would, we met up. Hey, let's go. All right, let's go. So we drove. We, he prayed. We prayed. We drove. Came up to a red light. He says, getting out of the city is the toughest part. Yep drive again, don't talk for another 45 minutes, all right, pull up, eat lunch, talk a little bit over lunch, talk about what we prayed about, don't talk for another hour. It was great. It was wonderful, okay, (laughs) right? Um, And it just fit us so well. But I walked away very encouraged that day that I spent time with my brother because we we prayed together, we talked a little bit about what we prayed together, we talked a little bit about the beauty of creation, but it wasn't this formulaic, you know, we didn't have an outline, okay, we're going to talk about this, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this. It was just living life together and being open with what God's teaching us. That's what we need. I walked away from, I came home that day, and Anuk was like, how did it go? And I said, I just really needed this prayer time today. I really needed this fellowship with my brother. So my point is this, we all need things like that. Motorcycle riding may not be your deal, okay? But relationships has to be in there. Even the most introverted is, is that even a word? Most introvert of us? You grammarians, whatever I'm trying to say, you know, okay? But the point is we need together, be together. Small groups, make sure you make a priority. We have a lot of options. We have one or two other people that are kind of waiting in the wings. If all those fill up, we can start more, okay? So, This is something that we really think is important for us as a church. So it's not just a program, it's a strategy for us to grow closer to Christ and encourage one another to do that. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says that we need to be deliberate in stirring up one another to love and good works. 
And that, a way to do that is not necessarily in a massive congregational setting like this, but more in smaller groups and things like that. So let me just encourage you, take advantage of that opportunity, okay? Because it is part of the strategy of us to grow in Christ. I wanted to take a little bit extra time in the beginning of the sermon to do that. I didn't want to do it in the announcement time, um, uh, but I really want to make sure that you understand that this is an important thing for our church, okay? All right. Psalm 32. I read the text already, so I'm not going to take time to read it again. But it's going to be our first in our series of what's called Stunning Psalms. The, the truths and the realities that are found in these psalms that we're going to look at should really stun us. But unfortunately, what happens is we become all too comp- familiar with them, and it, we, we become complacent at times. And so what our goal is, as we, as we bring these truths back to light... As we talk through these over the next several weeks, um, that we would get refreshed and that we would be in awe again of God and who He is. Now, the Psalms are an interesting book to study. In my church emails this week, I mentioned a little trivia there that it's actually, um, in the original compilation of it, it's actually five books. Um, that are putting together. So the Psalms, 150 chapters or Psalms that we have in our Bibles today are actually five books put together. So some of you, maybe in the notes and the margins of your Bible, if you come to a certain Psalm, it'll say book one or book two. That's, that, that's what that's talking about. You need to understand that the book is also poetry. And so because of that, as you're reading poetry, you interpret poetry different than you would maybe a letter or a how-to manual, if you will. So we need to have that in the back of our minds. There's going to be a lot more metaphors, and there's going to be much more imagery that are going to be used in these psalms that we're going to look at. So we need to keep that in mind as we look through it. Another thing you want to keep in mind is that sometimes there's uh, uh, parts of uh, the text that uh, are sometimes read and sometimes not read. So for instance, in our psalm today, Right before verse 1, it says a maskal of David, and some of your texts would say that. Some of you may say something else, but the word, the Hebrew word is maskil, okay? M-A-S-K-I-L. And so what that is, is it's a word that we're not sure what it means, okay? Uh, the, the, the grammatical uh, Hebrew historians, they're not sure if that's a musical term or if it's a uh, term meaning instruction. We're not sure about it. But that, it's important to understand that when you see that line above verse 1 in Psalms, that is part of the original text, okay? In fact, some translations in some languages, uh, that's actually verse 1. It's in the French Bible, correct? Yep. So if you read the French Bible, that's actually verse 1. Um, what we have is verse 1 would be verse 2. There's another word that you'll see in the text that I didn't read, uh, and that's the word selah. Okay. Again, we're unsure of what that word means. Most people settle on the idea that it's a musical expression meaning pause or rest. Okay. Most of the time it isn't read. So I want to lay this introductory material just so you know that when you come through the Psalms, this is what's happening here and you can understand it. Another thing that we need to understand about Psalms is that they're not written in chronological order. Okay, so Psalm 1 didn't happen necessarily before Psalm 2. 
It's, it's a combination or a compilation of songs. So before you, uh, uh, in the seats in front of you, there's a hymn book there. And we understand that you can turn to hymn books, and we don't expect those hymns to be written in chronological order because it's just a, a, a putting together of songs a lot of times in by topic or by theme. The same is true of the Psalms, is that they're not in chrono, chronological order. Now, the reason why I bring that up is that's become apparent here in just a second, because um, uh, we're going to see actually how this relates to, I believe, Psalm 51, but I believe Psalm 51 came before Psalm 32, Okay. The last thing I want to point out is even though, as we're doing this introductory uh, information about the Psalms, even though they're not written in chronological order, and even though it is poetic, and so there's much more uh, uh, imagery, metaphors, and things like that than in other types of writing, it is very contextual, meaning that they are addressing issues or they were written in context of circumstances. And sometimes those headings actually help us out. Um, in fact, in, I think it's 34, it says, yep, and 34, it says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away, okay? So that was, we get the historical context right there of what was happening there. Now, we don't have that for every psalm, and in, for instance, the one we're looking at, we don't have an explicit statement of it, but by the context of it, I think we can at least maybe understand what was going on in David's life. So those are some of the things I just wanted to make sure that we understood as we begin the study of Psalms, that it's a little bit different than a, a letter maybe to uh, the Paul's writings, or it's even different than the prophecy books like we just looked at in Obadiah. So it's important you understand that. Now we do know from that heading that uh, David is the author of this. Um, and as I said, this was written according to a life circumstance. Now, we don't know for certain exactly what the life circumstance was, but I do think, um, and I, I don't, I'm not alone in this opinion, Other, uh, there are plenty of Bible scholars that uh, I would agree with in this, is that most likely this was surrounding the context of David's sin with Bathsheba. That's found in 2 Samuel book of 2 Samuel, chapters 11 and 12. If you're unfamiliar with it, let me just remind you real quickly what had happened. What had happened was, is David, he was the king at that time. He was in this palace. He should have been out on the battlefield with his warriors, but, but he was in the palace. And one night, as he was out on the, on the top of the palace overlooking the city, he happened to look over, and there was a woman on the rooftop of her house but of course, he's in the palace, so he's much higher. And so he looks down and he sees her. But the, the problem was, is that she was bathing. And so she was uncovered. She was naked. And instead of turning his eyes away, lust began to take his control of his heart. And he looked at her. And then he sent for her and said, bring her to the palace. And he committed adultery with her. And even beyond that, then word comes back a short time later. Bathsheba sends word back to David and says, I'm pregnant. And my husband Uriah is at war. So we know it's not his child. It's your child. Well, through the course of events, David tries to cover his sin. And what he does is he, he brings Uriah home. 
Bathsheba, Bathsheba's husband and brings him home and, and, and basically says, yo, go home, get, her, get some rest, go home, be with your wife. But Uriah was a very noble man. The next morning, David thinks that Uriah is back home, been away for a long time, thinking that he's rekindling the relationship with his wife. But he finds out that Uriah had spent the night at the doorstep of the palace. And he said, why should I be at home eating and drinking and enjoying the company of my wife while my men are in tents in the battlefield? Well, David's plan is derailed at this point. David had, was hoping that Uriah would go, the, re- the reconnection between his wife. Then David could just say, no, not my child, must be Uriah's child. So then David takes it a step further. And David, what he does is he sends word to the general and he says, I want you to put Uriah in the most heated part of the battle then what I want you to do is I want you to be at the forefront and then when, give a sound and everyone else falls back, but don't tell Uriah. And so leave Uriah out there to die. And they did it. Battle comes and Uriah is out there waging war. An unknown signal to Uriah, unknown to him at least, is given, everyone falls back. Uriah is left out there all by himself and is killed in battle. David then hears word And so he takes Bathsheba as his own wife. Terrible story. Terrible circumstance. And let me just say parenthetically here, okay? Let's put this in parentheses for us. I think that this is one of the greatest examples of why we can know the Bible is true. Because the heroes of the Bible, we're talking about King David here. His throne will be forever. We're talking about King David here. Warts to see. Because God isn't about using perfect people because there are no perfect people. God is about using broken people and transforming them. And so I think that this is a great uh, uh, testimony to the validity of our scriptures because even our heroes have flaws. If you're making something up, if you're making up uh, a narrative, the people that you're supposed to want people to be like and follow, they would not have these terrible flaws. But all of them do in the Bible. Moving on, though, from that parentheses, that little break there, what we have here is that then David is thinking everything's okay. Bathsheba's now his wife, and um, moving on with life. There's a prophet by the name of Nathan, if you read about that, continuing to chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. What had happened was, is Nathan, the prophet, understands what has happened goes to the king, tells a little parable about, you know, there's a guy that has a lot and, and, and then there's a guy that has a little bit and he's just got one little, one little lamb and the guy with a lot comes and takes the one lamb he has. And David's thinking that this is a true story and he's angry. He says, why should this man, why should this rich man do this to this poor person? You know, that is, that is abominable That should not be tolerated. And Nathan points his finger at David and says, you are that man. You're a king, you have everything, and yet you go and you take what little Uriah had, and then you killed him. And then at that point, uh, judgment is given to to David. It's terrible, it's a tragedy. In fact, what had happened was it ended up in the death of, of the child. David pleaded, prayed that God would change his mind. 
But judgment was given, and David had to endure it. It was terrible. You know, in Psalm 51, we know for certain that that is dealing with this circumstance when he says, and he is actually repenting of his sin. So the, chron- the, the chronology of this is 2 Samuel 11 and 12, Psalm 51, when David actually prays and asks for uh, repentance, and he says, then I will teach transgressors thy ways. But he's like, cast not thy spirit from me. And he's asking God to forgive him of his sin. It is in that backdrop of that terrible sin, of the repentant prayer of Psalm 51, that I believe that we can understand Psalm 32. I'll read the first two verses again. It says this, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in, him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, what I think David wants to share here for us today is the blessing of being forgiven, and then to instruct other people on how to deal with the sin that is in their life. Because here's the reality. Every one of us in this room has sin that we need to deal with. Everyone. Every one of us are sinners. The Bible is very clear about that, and our own experience tells us that, that we are sinners, and so we need to do something about that. We have violated God's laws and violated God's commands in some ways. Every one of us has done that. So the reality is we all have the same problem. We all have the problem of what do we do with our sin. I don't know if you've ever had a problem before where you just can't solve. You just can't figure it out, where you have tried everything for. You know, right now in our church building, Tom and I, we have one of these problems, and that is one of the classrooms, there is just every range, there's just a little bit of water coming into that classroom. Tom, this guy has done so much to try to make sure that doesn't happen. I mean, he has, he went and bought a bunch of tar okay, and put it between the crack of the building and where the asphalt is. I mean, and he pumped a lot of that in there. I mean, he's just pouring it, pouring it. And I come back from a meeting, and he's out there, and I was like, oh, you got this done? And, and he's like, yeah, I was just pouring it down there. It was just filling up. and it was, So he did that. Water still comes in. He's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. So he gets this big, huge, long gutter extension, right? Puts it out back there, puts a cone right by so no one hits it. Says, all right, this is going to take care of it. Then on top of that, he gets like this asphalt stuff, and he puts it on top of the tar. He builds it all up and everything like this. I was like, all right, we got this thing problemed. We got this problem solved. This morning, he's like, there's like an inch of water coming in. Just like, we can't figure out where this thing's coming from, right? Okay, so when you're praying this week, pray for Brother Tom, okay, that he figures this thing out because it's going to drive him nuts, okay? And then also, if you're good at finding out where water comes in the building, see Tom, right? <laughs> okay, so this is a problem. Sometimes we get these problems that we just, we can't figure out what to do. Well, here's the issue. We all have a sin problem. We all have a problem that we need to deal with. And the reality is there's really only two main options for us to deal with. And what David does here in this psalm is he gives both of those options to us. So let me me give those to you. The first option is that we try to deal with sin on our own terms. 
That's the first option. And remember I told you the story of David when, and, and, and with the sin with Bathsheba, and, and he tried to deal with it in his own terms, and, and he was trying to do that by first you know, bringing Uriah back and, and, and letting him have the night with his wife, and, and he didn't do that. So then it was you know, killing him in battle and then bringing Bathsheba as his own wife. And so there was multiple times David was trying to deal with sin on his own terms. And we see it here in Psalm 32. It says in verse, verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, uh, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up by the heat of summer. That for, those first few words there tells us when he was trying to deal with this in his own terms, and that was that he kept silent. What does that mean? Well, it can mean a lot of different things. I think one of the ways that we keep silent about sin when we try to deal with it in our own terms is that we just ignore the sin that's in our life. We, we just pretend it's not there or, or we, we always know it's there but we just kind of ignore it. So when, the, when our conscience speaks to us and says, you, know, you, you probably shouldn't be watching that show or they, you know, it's probably not healthy for you to speak this way. It's probably not healthy for you to, to, to want the attention of that person at work or it's probably not healthy for you to, to go to the site or it's probably not healthy. Whatever it is, when that conscience speaks to us, we can just push that aside and just say, no, stop speaking to me, conscience. I'm not going to listen. And we excuse it. That's another way of doing it. We can maybe minimize or excuse the sin that we have. Um, you know, I, I, I was talking with a friend this, this last week. We were coming back from a meeting, and, um, and we were talking about the speed limit, Okay. And he said that, you know, a while ago he was, he was convicted that he was speeding all the time. And, uh, and you, know, you know, I wasn't saying anything because I was convicted too at that moment. Um, but uh, that he was convicted. But, but he said, you know, I used to make excuses for speeding really fast. And so, you know, I could have just let it go. But I said it'd be more interesting to hear what his excuses were. So I said, well, what were your excuses? He says, you know, and he kind of, you know, he kind of just kind of like knowing that it was the lamest excuse ever. But he says, I used to kind of rationalize in my mind, I'm gone so much. I need to spend more time with my family. So I need to get there faster, spend more time with my family. And it was like this quiet pause in the car for what felt like a lot longer. It was probably about 10 seconds. And then I said, that's pretty lame, <laughs> you know? And he says, yep, it is. But, you know, we all do that. We all make excuses for what we know is wrong. And David here, he was doing that. He was, he, was, he was silent about the sin that he knew that he had committed. He was not dealing with it in the way that he should have been dealing with it. He was dealing with it in his own terms. He tried to cover his sin, um, this is, you know, with, I, I mentioned the whole thing with Uriah and, and bringing him back and then letting him go into the battle and then bringing Bathsheba as his wife. All that was an attempt to cover his sin and so that he would not, no one else would know about it and so it wouldn't be properly dealt with. He wanted to just, just make it go away. These are the type of people that only say they're sorry if they get caught. These are the type of people that will only deal with something when they're absolutely forced to. Now, that's the way 
when he kept silent. Let's deal with it on our own terms. Look at the outcome of that. In verse 3, it says, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Verse 10, the first part of verse 10, it says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And so we see misery and sorrow really are the outcome of this. Now, there's two different tiers to this. I was trying to think through this of how to apply it to where we are at today. You see, for David, he, he knew God, okay? So, so that, was, that was a little different. Uh, I mean, I mean he, he knew who God was, and maybe that's where a lot of us are at here today. But what I'm saying is there, there's a difference between someone that knows God and someone that doesn't know God. For David, is knowing God and dealing with sin and trying to cover it, 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 he was feeling God's corrective hand, which Hebrews chapter 12 talks about. He was, he was feeling that all the time. We see that it was manifested in physical difficulty, in, in psychological difficulty, and a lot of this is, is probably metaphorical, going back to the poetry, but nonetheless, he was miserable. He knew that what he did was wrong, and he was trying everything he could to, 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 to get rid of it, but it, he was still miserable. The other type of person, though, is someone who doesn't know God, and they may be just happy in their sin. And they don't understand the judgment that is being heaped upon them. But I suggest, and I think, and I suspect, that even the people who don't know God, they still understand that sin is wrong. Because we all are born with a conscience that God gives them. That's, that's an act of common grace. And so we understand that certain sins are wrong. We understand that we, when we do something, that it is not acceptable. But in our terms, a lot of times, we simply try to make it go away or ignore it. And David here is saying, I want you to understand that this brings misery and sorrow. We understand that there's instructions given here in verse 8. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. You know, people are, are, are a little confused on this when we're trying to interpret this psalm. Some people think that there's, this is an interjection of Yahweh speaking, and David is simply passing it along. Other people think that this was uh, wisdom that David got from God himself and is now passing along. And still other people think that it's just David saying, I'm going to uh, correct you and I'm going to instruct you. You know, there's really no airtight case for any of those three possibilities. I suspect it's the middle one. I suspect that this is what David had understood from the Lord and now he's passing it along. It really makes no difference because the truth is the same. The truth is, is that at some point in this psalm, when David wrote this down, he says, I need to teach you this. You need to understand that if you deal with sin in your own way, like I tried to do with Bathsheba, it just brings misery and sorrow. That's it. Misery and sorrow. And that's true for a believer or someone who's not a believer. And so if you're here today and you're struggling with joy, it could be that there's sin that you need to confess before the Lord. It could be that you're trying to deal with sin on your own, uh, on your own terms. I'm not suggesting that every difficulty, or every depression or anxiety that we have is immediately traced to unconfessed sin. I'm not saying that, so please don't hear that. But what I am saying is that if we have lack of joy in our life, if we have sorrow and misery in our life, it would be worth considering, am I trying to cover sin? Am I trying to ignore sin? Am I trying to minimize sin? Am I trying to deal with sin on my own terms? 
So I mentioned that in this text, there are two ways or two main options to deal with the problem of sin. The first option, as we've seen, is that we try to deal with it in our own terms. And he talks about how that leads to misery and sorrow. The second option is that we deal with sin on God's terms. Now, I put it the language of the first one that we try to deal with sin in our own terms because the reality is we all end up dealing with sin in God's terms whether we want to or not. We all end up uh, following God's plan at the end whether we realize it or not. Philippians chapter 2 is very clear about that, that uh, Jesus reigns and Jesus wins and the Bible is very clear that, that we will be held accountable for our sin or Jesus will be. Those are the two choices. So what David here is saying in verse uh, 5, he says, but first I tried it my way, but then look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so what he's doing here is this is called what we call the word repentance. He's repenting of his sin. The word repentance simply means to turn or to change. It's the idea of acknowledging, hey, what I did was wrong, and it was an affront to God, and I need his forgiveness for it, and I'm asking you to forgive me. It's an alignment of God in recognizing that, that, that God is is correct and just to call the shots about how sin is dealt with. And the Bible says, for the penalty of sin is death. This is Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. For the penalty or the payment of sin is death. And so that's, that's, that's what we have to pay. That's the bill we get when we sin against God. The bill that we owe is death. Because we've sinned against the holy God. And Romans chapter 5 is very clear about this. It says, for it was by one man's sin entered into the world, and death entered into the world. Do you remember that? That was the, that was the promise. That was, that was what God said to Adam and Eve in the beginning. He said, of all the trees, you may eat of this, but there's one tree, just, just, just one tree. Don't do it. Don't eat of that tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He gave them the, 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 uh, the, the terms right from the beginning. He says, if you eat of it, Death happens. Now, it was mercy of God that he delayed that death so there could be a, rede- uh, a redemption plan because he said in the day of the evening you will die, but, but he elongated that so that we could have a redemption plan. But the reality is the, the, the payment, the penalty is death, and we are all deserving that whether you want to admit to that or not. That is the reality because the Bible teaches that. And so the, the point is, is that we can deal with sin in our terms and we can try to cover it, but it's never going to work. So the other option is we deal with it according to God's, God's terms. And that's why he says, I acknowledge my sin. I didn't try to cover it. I confessed it to you and you forgave me. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. You know that word confess, there's an interesting word. It's actually two words put together, a compound word. And what it means is, is, is it's um, agreement or to say the same thing, and then the word, um, uh, uh, about the word for words, okay? So to agree with verbally or to uh, say the same thing as. 
Okay, so put that, that definition back in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we say the same thing about our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So say the same thing as whom? Well, obviously God. So if we say the same thing about our sin as God says about it, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is the key to repentance is that we understand and we see sin as God sees it. That's what he's talking about here. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover it. I will confess my transgressions. And so he is acknowledging. He's not making excuses for it. He is confessing it. And he said, then that is when I found forgiveness. I didn't find peace. I didn't find restoration in a relationship when I tried to cover my own sin. No, 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 no. I found peace. I found joy. We're going to see later on in the text when I accepted my sin on your terms, that I'm guilty and there are no excuses. I'm not making excuses for them. Did you, did you notice that in verse 2 it says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I remember a long time ago reading this text. And I think I was a teenager, maybe not, I don't remember, but that was a long time ago. And I'm reading this text, and I came to that phrase right there, and in whom there is no deceit. And you know, the first thing I thought of was, well, that's not me. I mean, do we have to be perfect in order for God to cleanse us? I mean, how does that work? Is it in whose spirit there is no deceit? How is this helpful to me? Because the whole reason I'm coming to you, God, is because there's deceit in my heart. So why is it that you're saying, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, in whom in his heart is no deceit? It's like this circular reasoning here. It didn't make sense to me. Well, you know, here's what it's talking about here. He's talking about someone who's not lying about his sin and someone who is acknowledging it before God. He's talking about someone who's not making excuses. That's the deceit. The deceit is someone who says, it's not that bad. That's deceitful. There's someone who says, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That's deceitful. Someone says, well, look, I'm not, I, I, I'm not that bad as a, of a sinner. That's the deceit. Once we get rid of all those things and we say the same thing about our sin the way God says about it, then that's when we find forgiveness. And so how bad is your sin to you? Does it bother you? When you sin against God, is it something that, that is like, man, I, I, I'm sorry, God, please forgive me. Or can we just continue on day after day after day after day and, and when I even think about it? Now, there are some sins that we commit that we don't even know about, and I get that. I'm talking about the sins that we know about. You know when you shouldn't be watching something. You know that when you treat someone in an unloving way. You know that when you um, fudge the truth a little bit. You know when you uh, uh, take advantage of a situation or a work situation or, or, or a relationship. You, you know those things. And it's so quick and easy. It's so easy for us to push that aside and move on. David says, don't do that. It's going to come back and hurt you. Deal with sin. Be sensitive to sin before the Lord. Now, I want to be cautious because we could easily make it where someone just has this super sensitive conscience. Because I'm speaking to some people that need to hear 
this, you've got to realize a sin that's in your life, and you've got to realize that you're worse than you think you are, okay? There's some of you that need to hear that message. There's some of you that need to hear, okay, just because you've sinned doesn't mean that God hates you, okay? Doesn't mean you're lost forever. And so this is, this is the challenge that I have every week when I'm talking to a wide variety of people here. So if you're in the first category, and yeah, some of you need to think I'm worse than I think I am. Others of you need to understand that there is forgiveness available because some of us just get in this wallow in self-doubt and, 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 um, and pity. And what David here is saying is confess it and then rejoice. Confess it. And rejoice. How do I know that? Because this is the outcome of his forgiveness, security, and joy that we see here in this text here. First of all, this idea of forgiveness, he says, you forgave. If I confess, there is forgiveness. The idea of security, did you see this in verse 7? You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. There's security there when we confess our sins before the Lord. He forgives us and gives us security that we, are, uh, that we can have, that he will not hold that against us. And then in verse 10, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is what David is talking about here, and the whole theme of this psalm is found in verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That can be you if it's not you today. You can be a person, a creation of God, where God holds no sin against you any longer. It could be where you, your sin, instead of you trying to cover your sin, which it never works, God says, oh, stop, let me cover it for you. That could be you, if that's not you already. And if it is you, you need to rejoice in that. This needs to be a platform to worship God and say, I am so grateful for your love. I am so grateful for your forgiveness, and you deserve glory and praise. I told you it could be you if it wasn't you. How do we get there? You know the answer. You know what I'm going to say. It's through Jesus, right? You see, this is why Jesus died. This is why Jesus lived. He lived a life of perfect obedience that you could never live and that I could never live. He lived it. That's why his obedience to the law was so important. He did what, what the expectations that, um, that the law demanded. And God, there was no disappointment and there was no judgment that he deserved because of it. But you and I didn't do that. And so we deserve the judgment. But Jesus lived that perfect life of obedience and he died the death that he did not deserve. There was only one reason why he died. And it wasn't because of any sin. It was because he wanted to take it for you. And the Bible says we believe and we follow him and it demands our allegiance to him. We're forgiven. And so this is what David is saying. The, the most happy person in the world, the most joyful person in the world should be the people who know that they're forgiven. Here's a problem. There's a lot of Christians that just don't seem very happy. Um, I struggle with it at times too. Where's that category? 
It seems like either you have joy because you're a believer in Christ and happiness, or you are miserable because you're trying to deal with sin in your own terms. Where's the category for the person who says they understand the gospel of good news of Jesus Christ, but yet they're miserable? I think Peter helps us with that. I won't take time to turn there. But there's a phrase that he uses, and he talks about it in our Christian life, and he says, giving all diligence, add to your faith the virtue, and the virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness uh, kindness, and to kindness charity. And so he's saying, this is what should be happening in your life. He says, if these things are in you and abound, he says, that's what should be happening. But he says, but he who doesn't have these things is blind. And there's a phrase here that is really sobering to me. It says, and, has been for, and he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. How is it that you and I can get to the place where we can forget about the stunning reality of Psalm 32? How is it that you and I can get so caught up with day-to-day life and, and, and getting to this Friday or getting to the next goal or getting to the next thing and, and, and we can just forget this? So this is a call, if that's you today, this is a call to say, go back and remember and, and be renewed in your mind of the, the beauty of being forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And let that melt that cold heart that is building up. Let that... Let that stay that biting tongue that may be threatening to come out and unleashed on other people. Because when that's happening, we've forgotten. But, but, but when we are living in the reality, the day reality of, I'm a forgiven person, how can we not have joy? How can we not have happiness? Think about it this way. The biggest problem that you will ever face in your life the solution has already been given to you. It's all downhill from there. The eternal problem of sin is the biggest thing you will ever face in this life. And it's already been dealt with. So how can we not have joy in those situations even when it's difficult? And so this is a call to Christians and non-Christians. This is a call to people to go back to God and follow God on his terms and deal with sin according to his way and not according to our way. So let me land the plane, as it were. Let me conclude by saying this. There's really um, two application points that I want to put before you. Here's the first one. Repent of your sin while you have time. You say, well, what do you mean? Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly, the idea is faithful there, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. It's the idea, metaphor of chaos and difficulty. The rush of great waters will not reach the person who has reached out to God. But you notice that? While you may be found. I was debating about how to phrase this. Um, you know, there's, there's the, kind of what the passage says, and that's easy to outline, you know. But then there's how you teach it. And that's, that, that, that takes a lot more work, Okay. And I was really working on this and trying to figure out how to communicate this truth. And one of the metaphors I thought about using was, um, you know, and I thought it, it may not quite get it and it could be confusing, is um, that God's forgiveness has a shelf life. OK? 
okay? Now, it could be confusing because, you know, God is, is willing to forgive. I, it, it clarified for me when Spurgeon, when I was reading Spurgeon's writings on this text, and he said, Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great English preacher of a couple centuries ago, said um, that um, uh, the time between sin, my sin, and uh, Jesus' return is called mercy, Okay? And we're living in merciful times right now. But the reality is, we, any one of us could go at any time, and the reality is Jesus can go back at any time. And so, and there's another reality too, is the Bible talks about we can harden our hearts so much that um, we're like stony ground. And even the most beautiful text of Scripture doesn't break through any longer because we've hardened our hearts so much. This is what David's saying. He says, listen, seek him while he can be found. Don't, don't, don't go into the debates right now of debating your sins right now. Don't, 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 don't do that. Just confess it to the Lord. Say, okay, it's wrong. Help me to change. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Repent while you have time. Some of us, we're living in this, 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 this merciful time. That's all of us actually. And we don't know when that time's gonna end. We, and, and once this life is done, there are no second chances. I mean, it's, it's not like you, you're going to get to heaven and be like, well, this is true after all. Okay, I'll believe. No, no. It's too late. Jesus, at that point, according to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he said, I will say in that day, depart from me, you, who work, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. I've shared with you before this most sobering and difficult parts of the Bible for me. I, I, I wish that it weren't true, but it is true, and it has to be true in order for God to retain his holiness and justice. But in his mercy and love and his kindness, he also, and justice, he gave Jesus to pay for that. So don't, you have two options here. Either you can pay for your sins or Jesus can pay for them. Let's go, and Jesus wants you to follow him. The last thing I'll say is this, and it's found in verse eight and nine, listen and learn. Verse eight says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or, or it will not stay near you. Listen and learn. Don't be like a horse. Don't be like a mule that has to have physical things just to keep them near and fighting with and everything. He's saying, just listen. Listen to my instructor. He says, I have walked this path. I tried doing it my own way. Misery and heartache. Don't do this. Just acknowledge your sin, and you will find joy, verse 10. You will find peace. You will be blessed, verse 1 and 2. This is the stunning reality of the psalm, is that you can have complete forgiveness of sins, and we need to continually to be offering up prayers of, of repentance and asking God to forgive us of our sins. I said there's, I'll close with this. I said that there's, there's two options here. Um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie National Treasure. It's been out for quite a few years now. Nicolas Cage is in it. And the premise of the movie, real quickly here, is that um, he discovers that there's a hidden map in the back of the Declaration of Independence, and um, no one will believe him. And then someone else finds out about that, and a, a criminal, and is going to steal the Declaration of Independence. He loves Nicholas Cage's character, loves the country so much that he says, in order to save the Declaration of Independence, I've got to steal it first. So now the whole movie, you haven't seen it, is them trying to race the criminal versus the good guy trying to steal the same object, okay? 
So they get there, and of course, uh, he does get the map ahead of time. He finds the national treasure. Spoil alert, sorry. Um, um, but uh, he, uh, um, he finds the treasure, and he's like, but he has stolen the Declaration of Independence in the process. At the end of the movie, he's sitting down there with the FBI agent who's been chasing him the whole time. And he just says, you know, here's all the treasure, here it is. I never wanted it anymore. He's like, you, you didn't want the treasure? You could have taken it off and run. And all this. He's like, nope. He goes, well, what do you want then? And Nicholas Cage's character, I can't remember his name, he says this. He says two things. He says, one, I would really like my family to get credit for finding this. It's like, okay. What's the second thing? He says, I really would like it if I didn't go to jail. <laughs> okay. Now, the response of the FBI agent is intriguing. He says, but somebody has to go to jail. And he says, well, maybe I can help you with that. And so he, they, they end up catching the criminal, and that's the criminal goes to jail. That phrase has always stuck out in my mind. Someone has to go to jail here. Justice has to be served. We can't just let this go unnoticed. We can't just sweep this under the rug. Someone has to go to jail. The reality is someone is going to pay for your sin. Someone is going to pay for my sin. David here is saying, if you try to go about it your own way, you're paying for it. And the Bible says that's eternal destruction. But Jesus says, let me pay for it. Let me pay for it. Trust me. Confess it to me, and I'll cover it. Those are only two choices. And the fact that God the creator of the universe would make it so that you and I could have Jesus pay for our sins? That is stunning. That is amazing and worthy of worship. We have a table here before us today. Every other week at our church, we have the Lord's Supper together. And what we do is we, um, we commemorate in one way uh, Jesus' uh, death on the cross. We commemorate what we've been talking about here, this idea of Jesus dying on the cross to pay for our sins. And so what I want us to do today is I want us to think about how this is a stunning reality, and this is uh, something that is very important for us to remember and something for us to worship God in as we uh, remember what Psalm 32 says. Psalm 32, Psalm 32 says that our sins can be forgiven if we acknowledge and we confess it. And so if that's you today, if you've acknowledged your sin before God and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, what we're doing here is we are remembering that in a way that God has told us to remember it. He's told us to get together and to share this simple meal in memory of the broken body that Jesus sacrificed to pay for your sin and to pay for my sin. And the blood that was shed, this is grape juice in these cups here, and it, 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 it uh, symbolizes that Jesus bleeding and dying for our sins. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, get together and remember this and do this until I come back. Because it is important for us to remember that forgiveness is possible. It's, it's important for us to remember, if you're a believer in Christ, that forgiveness has happened. So we worship God because we don't want to be like those people in Second Tim, excuse me, Second Peter who have forgotten. So this table here reminds us today of the stunning truth that your sins are forgiven in Christ. 
Now, if that's not you today, if, if you haven't asked Christ to save you, if you haven't asked God to forgive you of your sins, well, let me suggest you do that right now. Let me suggest that you just take a second and ask God to save you from your sins. And then for the first time, you can join in celebrating the death to save you from your sins. If you want more questions, you have questions about that, talk to me afterwards. I'd be happy to talk with you more about it. But for us, let's worship the Lord together by eating and drinking together. Now, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to break the bread like this. And as I do, it's symbolic of the body that was broken for you and for me. And what is going to happen is that everyone's going to come up. We're going to stand in just a minute. We're going to sing. Uh, the musicians are going to come up and lead us once they start the music. Then everyone just comes up and um, take a piece of bread out of the cup here. Take a, a, a cup of juice and then go back to your seat. Uh, we understand there are some people that they can't or it's difficult to come up to this way. And so Roger is going to go through the auditorium. He'll take a thing of juice and he'll take um, some bread, a little plate of bread, and, and just catch his eye. Uh, Roger, raise your hand real quick. Okay. And so uh, just catch his eye and he'll be happy to serve you. He's going to go back and serve the sound guys, the AV guys back there anyway. And so he'll be happy to serve you. But this is a time for us to remember and to worship God for the stunning reality that forgiveness is possible. So let's do this. Let's take just a second in a quiet moment, pray, ask God to uh, renew in your heart the reality and the beauty of being forgiven. And then I'll pray and then uh, we'll sing and, and eat and drink together. So take a minute and just pray by yourself. Father, none of us are worthy of your forgiveness. And I think that's what makes it even that much more stunning. Father, I, I confess, I, I feel like there's... I just, I, just, I just don't have the vocabulary to communicate what an awesome reality this is. I pray that your spirit would use your words in Psalm 32 to refresh in our hearts the beautiful gift of forgiveness that is offered to us. God, there are so many times in this life that we just forget. And I know that today I was speaking to people who have in the past asked you to forgive them of their sins. But maybe in the day-to-day -day life have just kind of forgotten that. Let the cares of this world be too heavy upon them. And maybe haven't dealt with the sins in their life that they need to. So I pray in this time that your spirit will work in a way that only you can do. And Father, I pray for people here who have not followed you. Who have, if this is the... They've never really repented of their sins. They've never, they, they, they've maybe have given lip service to the idea of no one's perfect, but they've never accepted their sinfulness in the terms like David described for them. I pray that today would be the day that they see their sin as you see it, they confess it, and they experience the wonderful, beautiful gift of repent, of, of forgiveness.
So give them repentance. And I pray that as we eat and drink together now, that we do in a spirit of worship and gratitude and love and it would be encouraging to one another as we come together as brothers and sisters at the table, remembering who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray these things. Amen.